We have read the Word of God. We're going to see what Jesus is going to say to us. And I'm going to say this as sort of a, I guess, a way to approach this passage. If you are like me, you really probably try to find a way out from under the pressure of this passage. Surely, Jesus does not mean what we just read. He can't. That's what our flesh is going to say. I'm going to suggest that maybe we better take this a little bit more literally than we're used to. So as I preach through this, I want you to resist the impulse of your flesh to justify defensive retaliation, to come up with excuses why we don't need to in this context. I'll be careful in one statement to tell you if it is spousal abuse or if it is parental abuse. Listen, there's protection for you. I preached about this two weeks ago. But we're really not talking about that. We're talking about, Jesus is talking about people who are difficult, people who mistreat us. So how do we apply this passage to real life situations where honestly sometimes it's pretty painful because people could be pretty bad. You know, Martin Luther once told of a man who let lice nibble on him. He refused to kill any of them, maintaining that he had to suffer and he could not resist evil. In fact, that's what Jesus said. That's what this man told Martin Luther. Well, this passage has been used by corrupt abusers, by the way, sometimes spousal abusers, to justify their horrible actions. Some have taken this passage to create a doctrine of, of pacifism or non-resistance. I almost took a church one time that asked me specifically, what would you do if somebody broke into your home and threatened to kill your wife and your children? That was a question for me in an interview as a pastor at a church not too far south of here. So some, some churches believe, no, you can never resist. That's what Jesus said. You've got the Anabaptists of Germany. You've got traditional, current, uh, a lot of current Mennonites. You've got Quakers called Friends. All of them take this passage to mean that you never, ever resist an evil person. You never are allowed to enter the military. In fact, the, the famous writer Leo Tol Tolstoy, he based his really incredibly highly regarded book called War and Peace on this very passage that we're about to dig into. He believed that society should eliminate police, the military, other forms of authority, bringing about what he thought would happen, a utopian society. You know what happened to Tolstoy on his deathbed? He admitted that this would, ne would never work. Is this really what Jesus is preaching? Well, let me, let me get you moving down the right lane, I think, down the right road, and then we're going to really dig into this in three points. It really has nothing to do with pacifism. It has nothing to do with the death penalty, is it right or wrong, or whether you can serve the military or whether you can um, you know, resist somebody that is abusing you. It has no, really, no bearing on that. It has everything to do with love. It has everything to do with how you treat people who don't treat you well. Now remember, there are six examples that Jesus has been giving in this passage in Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the conduct of his disciples. We've looked at four of them. This is the fifth one. 
Here's the four that we've looked at. We are to love and not murder. Remember that? We're to love and not murder. We are to love and not lust. We are to love and not divorce. And we are to love and not lie. That's the first four in very quick summary form. Here's the fifth. Here's the fifth example. What should be the conduct of his disciples? And here's what he's going to teach us. He's going to give us, he's going to teach us the heart of one who does not retaliate to difficult people in like kind, but instead loves them. Now, this is incredibly difficult. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I introed it just a little bit ago, but I'm going to really ask you to do this along with me. We must love well. Christian, you've got the heart to do it. You've been given a new heart. Listen, you don't have the old heart anymore. It's not like you've got the new heart that's working alongside your old heart. You've got a brand new heart. And no unbeliever can ever say what I'm going to tell you. You have got the Holy Spirit living in that heart. And all of his divine energy, all of his divine strength is working in your heart and in my heart to make us more like Jesus so that we live like Jesus. So you've got a new heart, you've got the Spirit of God living in that heart. And you've got a requirement, I'm going to say requirement, I want to be careful how you hear that. Because they're actually called commands. And you and I have got commands from Jesus to live like him, imitate God, he says, or Paul, the Apostle Paul says. So we are to live like Jesus, and we're going to see how Jesus lived in the midst of difficult people at the end of this message. But here's what we just read, verse 38. You, know, you, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Well, here's our three points. Here's the first of them. What did the Old Testament really say? Because this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the Old Testament law. We're going to look at what the scribes and the Pharisees did to this. They distorted it wildly, madly. And then we're going to look at what Jesus says to restore the intent of the Old Testament, applying it to the kingdom of God. He wants those in the kingdom, every disciple, to live this law. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now here's what this is called in ancient law books. It's called the law of retaliation. They actually had different names for it. It was included, now did you know this? It was included in almost every ancient civilization's legal books. The Greek called it the law of Siloam. The Romans, the law of 12 tables. The Babylonians called it the code of Hammurabi. The Old Testament, well, it includes it in three places. Never came up with a name for it. One of the places is Leviticus 24. Here's what it says. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is Old Testament law. And if a man, see here's what would happen. If a man from one tribe, let's say it's one of the 12 tribes, wounds a man from another tribe. Well, they took that pretty seriously. The injured man's tribe would often, to protect the honor, 
of their fellow tribesmen who was injured would go back and attack the one who injured him from the other tribe. So it's, it's, you're getting even. The law was put in place. God put this law in place to put a boundary around it, to put a cap on vengeance, because here's what would happen. As this tribe would go back to injure the one who originally hurt their fellow tribesmen, they always would injure them to a worse degree than the one who was injured. And then, of course, this tribe is going to protect his honor, and it's going to retaliate even more and injure the per- a, a person from this tribe even more than that one. And it would escalate until war would erupt between the tribes. Now, this happens all throughout the Bible. See, the genius of God is to put a cap on violence, to put a cap on justice. Justice must equate to the crime and no more. You see, the law was to control revenge and minister justice through the courts with appropriate punishments. They ensured that the punishment fit the crime no less and no more. Now, let me, let me tell you this. There is no evidence, as far as I know, that this was ever literally carried out in Judaism. No evidence that they actually put an eye out of someone who punched somebody and ruined their eye. There's no evidence of that. Since, and I'll tell you why, since the putting out of the aggressor's eye did nothing to relieve the sudden burden of the one who had been injured. Now listen, you don't have an eye, in, you don't have an eye now. So what good is it for you to have somebody put out that person's eye. It's not going to help your livelihood anymore. So what happened was a system developed. If the judge ruled in the victim's favor, the one who inflicted the injury had to now pay for the loss of wages, the medical expenses, the life's disability of the one whose eye they put out. And if that occurred meaning he won the legal lawsuit, they also had to pay for the social humiliation. You see, the problem with all these laws, and this is, by the, by the way, the problem with our current laws, I hope you hear this. This is why I, I get some grief for this, I, and I understand why. In fact, I've got somebody in here that's very involved politically, and he should be. We need people involved politically. But listen, I don't put any hope in our politics. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's expressed through politics. I don't think politics brings about the gospel. I think it can cap evil. I think it can restrain it. But listen, the problem in the ancient law, as well as the problem today, is that legal means cannot get to the heart of a person. You can put all the laws in place, and we need them, laws govern our behavior, but without the Spirit of God redeeming somebody, the heart is intact. The heart is what needs to be made new. And so we've got this ancient Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and yes, it could cap vengeance. It could administer justice through the court system. It could take care of the person who was wrongfully injured, but it could not ever get to the heart. It could not release love from the victim to the one who is the perpetrator. That's where Jesus is going to go. That's where you and I must be.
But the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they distorted this, point number two. See, the, the scribes, let me remind you who they are. They're legal experts in Judaism, the religion of the Jews. These are Jewish lawyers. And the Pharisees are basically Jewish pastors. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the pastors and the lawyers of the Jewish people, they permitted, now listen, here's where they distorted it. They actually mandated that the offended person become his own judge, jury, and executioner. Nothing in the Old Testament ever allowed for that. You must go through the court system. I mean, listen, here's what God did. When they moved into the promised land, they went across the Jordan River into the promised land, and they expelled the Canaanites there and all the, the foreigners, and they began to take up residence, and God divided them into 12 tribes or into their, tw into their tribes. He created seven cities of refuge. And he, he mandated that not one city would ever, let me, let me bring that around from the other direction. Not one Jew would ever live anywhere in the promised land more than 30 miles from a city of refuge. That was the law. He even told them where to put them. And what would happen is if you accidentally killed somebody, and all of a sudden that person's family is going to want to retaliate and kill you, you can flee, it's one day's journey, you can flee to a city of refuge and the, the family of the one killed legally could not exact vengeance on you. You were now allowed a fair trial. And the, and the legal system of the Jewish people was incredibly well developed. See, God cares about retaliation. He cares about vengeance. He cares about justice. And God's law meant to bring about justice, to stop revenge. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they turned it into individual license, and civil justice was distorted to personal vengeance. They actually said, listen, if you are wounded, even if it's your honor, it's not just your right to get even, you must get even. That's the law. That's how they taught it. You must have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, they insisted on defending personal rights and honor. It's kind of shocking, isn't it, to hear what I'm about to read to you from my utmost for his highest? Oswald Chambers wrote this, The only right a Christian has is the right not to insist upon his or her rights. That's shocking. Because that's completely contradictory to American philosophy. Seldom does any statement that I make receive more pushback than the one that I often tell you, the Christian must give up rights. We must. Dozens of arguments immediately form, yet our Lord himself, he showed the example of this. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He gave up the right to express his divinity at his own will. He became our servant. See, our country's Declaration of Independence says that we've been endowed by our Creator certain and inalienable rights, that among those are the rights to life, liberty, and happiness. We've all grown up hearing this. 
But you know what? Jesus aims a whole lot deeper, right into the heart. He, he goes right to changing the way that we view our rights. The very defending, angry, vengeful heart is not a heart of love toward the one who is evil. So how do we do this? Here's what I've said very briefly, because I'm going to spend most of the time on this third point that I'm just about to get into. Here's what I've said. The Old Testament law, God created it. It was meant to prevent retaliation and revenge, and to, it was an instrument to bring about justice. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they perverted it, they distorted it, they said, yeah, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That means you must get revenge. You must retaliate. It's not an option. You have to do it. This is what they're teaching the people. So Jesus corrects them. The fulfillment of the law, point number three. Look at what he says in verse 39. Let's really dig into this. This could be the rest of the sermon. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, immediately your flesh, probably, if you're like me, wants to go, man, I really want to know what that word resist means. Maybe it means, you know, you know, don't resist all the way. Or maybe it means, you know what, don't give in immediately, but at some point. I mean, listen, we try to get out from under the weight of this. It is so hard to hear this. Here's what the word resist means. It means to set against or oppose. So Jesus is saying, do not set yourself against or oppose the one who is evil. Now, you've got to be a student of the Word of God. So what's the context? Because that's going to help you interpret, translate correctly what he means by not resist. The context is the disciple of Christ should not have personal resentment, should not have a heart of spite or vengeance towards someone who does them harm, someone who wrongs them, someone who steps over them at work, robs them of a promotion, you can't have a heart of spite. Someone in your neighborhood who starts a rumor about you. Your heart cannot be filled with resentment toward them. This is what Jesus is saying. You cannot set yourself up. I'm going to get back at that neighbor, or I'm going to find a way to let my boss know all the things that that coworker who leapfrogged over me, all the things that that person does wrong. I'm going to report. Listen, you cannot resist, set up or oppose the one who does evil. It's easy to preach. It's going to get a lot harder. Because he's going to give us four examples. See, you know, here's what Jesus, he's so good. He's the master preacher. It's the greatest sermon ever. Here's what he knows. He knows what your flesh, he knows what my flesh is going to do with this. So he's going to give us four examples. Here's how you handle these four examples. Now listen, they're not exhaustive. So if you walk out of here going, well, you know what? He, he never experienced this. Or he didn't mention this, so I've got license to resist in this one. He's not going to let you do that. He's going to give you four pretty sweeping examples once we dig into these. Here's the first. Be willing to give up the right to dignity. Be willing to give up the right to dignity. Now listen, have you ever been, I want you to really think about this. Have you ever been humiliated? I was up to New York this last week where I grew up. 
And the name of a person came up in conversation with my mom and my brother. And then this person, in front of everybody, as I was growing up, I was, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your sympathy for me. I was short, chubby, braces, glasses, red hair. I'm a poster child for humiliation, all right? Now, if I just described you, don't take that the wrong way, okay? Sorry. Didn't mean to. But I had this one guy at school, and if some of you are my age or around my age, you'll get this, who would come up in front of everybody and poke his finger in my stomach and then call me the Pillsbury Doughboy. Now, his name came up this last week in conversation. And immediately, now listen, here's how you know if Jesus is working in your life, if he's redeeming you, if this is applying to you. Immediately, that memory came up because he did it over and over and over and over, always humiliating me. 30 years ago, when that memory would come up, so would anger, so would resentment, so would spite, so would dislike for him. When it came up this last week, this is the way that God is showing me, yeah, Tim, I'm freeing you, I'm redeeming you. When his name came up, none of that association came up with it. That's how you know when God is working. Now, that's not true for everybody in my life, but it's true for that one. God is freeing me from spite. So when somebody humiliates you, Jesus says, be willing to give up the right to dignity. Look what he writes, verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, you ready? Here's what you're going to try to do, I think, or at least some of us. You're going to say, well, this is just metaphorical. He, he's just using, a, you know, an illustration, an example. I, I kind of think the more I grow in Christ, he's more literal than I want him to be. What if someone really did slap you? What if somebody really did punch you? What if somebody did push you down? How do you want to respond? Well, how does Jesus want you to respond? Look what he means, though. I'm going to tell you, most Jewish people were right-handed. That is true. That is documented. And to slap a person would have been more than likely with the right hand. And it would have been, look what he writes, slaps you on the right cheek. It required a backhanded slap. Now get your mind, think through this. Picture that in your mind, your right cheek. And they're right-handed. It would have required a backward slap. Unless they've got eight-foot, very elastic arms come around the backside of your head. This is a backhanded slap. It's not a violent punch. It's a backhanded slap. Now listen, why is that important to know? Because to a Jewish culture, this was a massive insult. This was humiliating. They would have preferred to be punched. In fact, a slave referred a whip to the back rather than a slap of insult by his master. That is true. In Jewish law, to hit a man with the back of the open hand was twice as insulting as punching him. And for both Romans and Jews, this was a, literally, this was a prosecutable offense that carried with it a very heavy fine. This was more of a fine than punching somebody. 
So Jesus says, instead of returning insult for insult, if they call you a name, let's trickle it into modern world, if they call you a name while you're driving down the road and somebody gets out in front of you or you accidentally get out in front of them and they give you the finger, instead of responding or yelling a word that they yelled back at you or yelled at you to begin with, listen, instead of doing any of that, Jesus is saying, you've got to love. I've got to love cannot do that. You cannot respond in like kind. Look what he says, turn to him the other also. The scribes and Pharisees demanded an equal response or there was injustice. Jesus says, listen, if someone humiliates you with a backhanded slap, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand there with love in your heart and I want you to show them the other cheek because if they need to get out more humiliation, let them do it. Everything in us, in this non-abused society, says, no, we scream, this is not right. Surely he's not preaching this. Now, you remember what I told you earlier. If you're a wife and you're being beaten by your husband, this is not, Jesus is not telling you to take the hits. That's not what he's preaching here. He's talking about everyday relationships where somebody treats you with indignity, with humiliation, puts you down, makes fun of you, spreads a malicious gossip about you. Listen, you've got to have a heart of love for them. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're in the kingdom of God, this is how you, this is how I must live. It's not an option. To prove that, everything he's saying, everything he's preaching is coming off of the very center of the sermon, verse 20. Can you go back and look at it with me? Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is serious stuff. The display of your righteousness will be seen when someone humiliates you and you respond in love. Well, then he goes to the second example. Be willing to give up the right to comfort. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The example Jesus gives here, it's not robbery. We're not talking about someone who is set upon by someone stronger than them or a group of people and being robbed of their their cloak. That's not what it is, or their tunic. We're talking about a lawsuit in a Jewish court of law where the judge rules in favor of your opponent. A tunic was the undergarment worn against the skin. The cloak is the outer garment, and it's used as a robe during the day, and it's used as a blanket at night. In fact, Exodus 22, listen to how it talks about the cloak. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, we're talking about a financial legal covenant transaction. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, God says, listen, if you've taken his cloak in the Old Testament and you refuse to give it back, and the guy cries out to God, look what God says. I will hear, for I am compassionate. So God cares that you've got a blanket. He cares that there's justice. Listen, if I make a pledge with you, Old Testament, and I'm not paying that pledge back the way I was supposed to, you legally could take my cloak, but you've got to give it back to me every night, and then every morning take it away again. 
And God says, you got to do this. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of justice. Jesus says, if someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. Legally, you will, you will have it back at night, but you will suffer embarrassment during the day. That's the point of this. People are going to know you don't have your cloak with you. And you've defaulted on your pledge. Now, you need to know this. Most Jews, this is so foreign to us. I mean, let's just take a little test. You ready? Not everybody's hands, maybe, but I bet almost everybody's. How many of you have more than one coat? Raise your hand. You know what? Back in the uh, biblical days at the time of Jesus, most Jews only owned one cloak. It was expensive. And probably one or two shirts or tunics, clothing was not only expensive, well, it was expensive because it was so hard to make. Jesus says, be willing to let go of your rights to your cloak. Demonstrate, listen, my disciples, he's saying, demonstrate uncommon desire that as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, and you will show that person the love of Christ. And then he says, be willing to give up the rights to freedom. Remember, you've got to keep this in view contextually. What Jesus, he's going to really cap this off next week in the next part of this sermon, the aim of this sermon is to show us how to love. The aim of this section is to show us how to love our enemies, how to love difficult people. So now he draws on the burdensome fact that Israel was a captive people to the Romans. Listen, the Jewish people were not free at the time of Christ. The Romans had conquered them. They were subservient, the Jewish people, to Rome. So all of a sudden we get an imagery of a Roman soldier, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now here's Roman law at the time of Jesus. A soldier could come up behind you and with his long javelin, tap you on the shoulder. Didn't matter what you were doing. You had, this was Roman legal law, you had to drop what you were doing and pick up that Roman soldier's pack and carry it one Roman mile, which is slightly less than one of our miles. It is 1,000 steps. So if you feel the touch of the spear on your shoulder, then this law was being exercised over you. And it is a, they did it maliciously to remind you, you are not free. You have to do what I am telling you to do. So think of that in your own life with a, an unfair boss that threatens to fire you or threatens to report you or to write you up. This is the exploitation of power. And you would burn if you were a Jewish person. Then you would burn with shame as you were forced to carry the weapons. Everybody's seeing you carrying his baggage, your oppressor's baggage. Well, here's what Jesus says. He teaches you, don't begrudge that soldier. And when you get to the end of that mile, I want you to turn to that soldier. I don't want you to drop the pack angrily like most of them would do. I want you to hold it on your shoulder and volunteer to go the extra mile. That's what my disciples do. The right to freedom is not to be cherished at the expense of love. And demanding our rights has no power to show the world the love of Jesus. Listen, love displays 
powerfully toward the one who is unreasonable to you. Jesus said, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. This is about loving difficult people. This is gospel love. It is beautiful, it is powerful, and absolutely impossible in your own power. And he gives one more example. It's going to be like fingernails on a chalkboard, and here's what he says. He's going to tell us, be willing to give up the right to your possessions. Now, I don't think any of these hit with the force of this one. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, listen, you ready? This is not a call to give to any and every person without discernment. Jesus does not have in mind giving to lazy people who can work and won't work. In fact, Thessalonians tells us not to give to that person. Don't give to irresponsible people. I had a person, uh, we were driving back from New York, back from my mom's, this was a couple years ago, stopped at a gas station. This guy comes up and says, listen, man, I'm heading up to Syracuse, New York, and I ran out of money. My girlfriend and I, we just need some money to get to Syracuse. I need to get some gas. And so, listen, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, we help people a lot in this church, and we, we've gotten, a, I don't know, I think we've learned a few things about it. So I said, well, listen, I'm going to tell you, I don't ever give cash to anybody, but I will buy you some gas. So let me finish filling up, and I'll come over, and I'll pay for your, I'll pay for 15 or $20 of gas for you. That'll get you up to Syracuse. I knew exactly how far it was. That's where I live lived as soon as I said that he said great man thank you very much next thing I know I turn around and I see him driving away he didn't want gas money he wanted cash listen you and I've got to be wise we've got to be discerning but give to the one who begs from you do not refuse the one who would borrow from you you know there was one guy that yells to Jesus in Luke chapter 12 he yells to Jesus to tell his brother Jesus tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus wouldn't do it. He never did it. Instead, he starts preaching against the power of coveting and greed, of which that man was part of it. So when you get to verse 42 in chapter 5, listen, you've got to have wisdom, you've got to have discernment. It's not a call to indiscriminate giving, just throw your money to anybody who asks. It's, it's calling for generous, open-handed giving. This is what most of us tend to do until God frees us. We hold our grip on our possessions with the mentality that I, these belong to me. The car is in my name, my name, the house is in my name. This is my house, my car. This is my money in my bank account. And what God does through the disciple maturing is the mentality that, listen, I don't own anything. I hope you understand this, Christian brother and sister. You don't own a thing. Not one thing is yours. It is all God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has placed it into your life with an open hand. He expects our hands to be open. And he has put it in your hands to steward it where it needs to go and to bless you to enjoy life. But the very moment that your fingers or my fingers curl back over my house, my possessions, my money, my things, God says, you don't understand. 
those are mine. And maybe I'm going to take them away for a little bit to teach you that lesson. Listen, this is the mentality of a Christian. And so James writes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, by the way, there's a world of discernment for generosity in here. What's needed is not what's wanted, right? You're discerning necessities in life. And we ought to be cheerfully giving and cheerfully generous. Abraham was. He cheerfully gave his nephew Lot the very best of the land. He says to Lot, you choose what you want. I'll take the rest. How many of us would do that? Well, that's what Jesus is getting to with our hearts. Elisha spread a meal before the Assyrian army, which had come and surrounded him to kill him. This is what a prophet of God does. This is what a disciple does. You're here to kill me? Well, let me prepare you a feast because I want to show you my love, the love of God. It's in my heart for you. See, we're to live free from the love of money, be ready to share with those in need, seeing our possessions as given by God to meet our needs and the other's legitimate needs. Now, let me, let me dig this down deep. You ready? Now, this is, you really have to listen to this part. I'm really almost done. Have you ever said nothing when slandered or insulted and instead begun to pray for that person? Now, now listen, what you and I normally do is when we've been slandered, we defend our honor. Have you ever dropped that tactic and said, I know the one who will defend me. Let me just pray for the one who's slandering. Have you ever done that? That's where Jesus is going. That's the call of discipleship. How well do you tip? Oh, this is a good one. How well do you tip a waiter or a waitress even when his or her service was poor? Listen, if we tip, or let me, let me bring it the other way. If God demonstrates grace the way that we tip, I think it would be very conditional from God. What about tipping well and putting a note to it about your Christian faith? Or even better yet, do what one gentleman from our church did when we went out to eat with them. He actually shared the entire plan of the gospel with our waiter. How about tipping extravagantly because you know they probably don't make a lot of money. Even when their service was poor, tell them, listen, here's why I'm tipping you this much. Because Jesus Christ has tipped me a whole lot more. Wow. We don't think like that, do we? Have you ever done your chores, kids? And then come back to your parents offering to do more? That's what all this sermon's talking about. Do you ever finish your work for the day at your job and then offer to help your coworker with his or her work? Have you ever torn up a personal loan that you have given to somebody motivated by voluntary love? That's extravagant. That's what people in Christ do. By the way, does anybody owe me money? Or do I owe you? That would be the better question. 
No. How are you feeling now? Now let's ask this honestly. I'm just about done. How are you feeling now that we have looked at the meaning in this passage? In each of these four examples, did you begin to mentally argue? But what about... Were you feeling overwhelmed, angry, defensive, exasperated, or incredulous? Surely Tim's not seeing this right. If so, Christian brother and sister, then you are experiencing what's called the collision between your flesh and the Spirit of God, that war of Galatians 5.16. And we can, live, we can live this way because Jesus has worked in us. He has given us a new heart. God, the Holy Spirit, is, is living in us. We are free from insisting on our rights for dignity, insisting on our rights for comfort and freedom and possessions. You see, this sermon shows us God's perfect standard. Now, I'm going to close. I've been telling you twice I'm almost done. I might not have been telling the complete truth on that. I'm trying to tell the truth, but I'm so excited. I've got to tell you this. This is amazing. What I'm about to tell you is the best part of the sermon. Jesus demonstrated every one of these. He demonstrated every one of these. He perfectly yielded his rights. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, Romans 3.22. Well, what's this righteousness look like? Well, Jesus perfectly yielded his rights. He loved the very people slapping him, punching him, nailing him to the cross. Do you know that they were walking when he's hanging on the cross? They're walking in front of him, the Jewish leaders, literally with their thumb on their nose like this, what you see with little children in the playground. That's what they were doing, thumbing their noses at him. They're mocking him. And what does he do? Praise Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Peter says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's inside having dinner with tax collectors and, fair, and, um, and, drinker, and drunkards and prostitutes. And they're outside, the Pharisees and scribes, going, Who is this guy? Who's associating with such sinners? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, Matthew 11. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what does Jesus do? He keeps preaching even to them. You must believe. And they would not believe. He's forced to carry his own cross. Listen, remember, go the extra mile? He had to carry his own cross after being beaten and whipped all the way to his crucif crucifixion site. The very, can you think about that for a second? It's, a, it's called the patibulum. It's a cross member, weighs about 75 to 125 pounds. They put it on his back, his shoulders. He's carrying it to the crucifixion site. The very, it's made out of a tree. The very tree that God created became the device for his cruel death. How ironic. You see, there's nothing that Jesus is asking of us that he has not already demonstrated that he's willing to do. He's done it all. We have to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, yield our rights, and love not only those who love us, but even more persuasively those who use us for their own advantage. The way you respond to them must be love. 
And as our flesh screams in reaction to these commands, what do we do? Now listen, here's the key. You ready? Your flesh is screaming. You've been mistreated. Here's what you've got to do. This is what I've got to do. You've got to flee to Christ. You've got to beg him, God, I need your power because I want to, I want to react. I want to let my rights come to the forefront. You've got to flee to Jesus who's made us righteous. And he will give you the power to live in the way that he has already exampled. Do not defend your honor. Let go of your comfort. Do not worry about your freedom. Give generously of your possessions, even to those who are difficult and oppose you. That is how disciples live in the kingdom of God. Amen? I think we better go ask the Lord to help us with this. So why don't we do that?